Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You can be seated. I know the choir was singing about marching, and they all had matching shirts on. I wanted to see them march off, you know, kind of come peel off that way, but they didn't. They didn't practice that one, all right? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll start in the first verse in just a moment. Had the privilege this year of visiting New York City and seeing the Statue of Liberty. It was a really neat moment. There's an inscription there on the statue that, the words of Emma Lazarus, that says this, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. My lamp lights that way, the golden door. Yearning to breathe free. I want us to look this morning at a passage of scripture that speaks of the four freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, the choir did three songs, so I'm going to, not to be outdone, I'm going to do 39 verses today, all right? So... Um, you pray for me, all right? You probably are already when you heard that, I know. We're going to look at these four freedoms, and I'm just going to state the freedom, and then we'll break down these passages, sections of this passage one at a time. So your first freedom that we have from the Word of God is we have this freedom, we've been set free from judgment. So number one, we've been set free from judgment. Look at verse one. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. I love that. Set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the flesh, like ours under sin's domain, as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've been set free from judgment. And because we've been set free from judgment, there is no condemnation. Look at verse 1 there. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And here's the key. Because we share the righteousness of God. This is so incredible. We have this freedom. There is no longer any condemnation because we've been set free from sin. We share the righteousness of God. And he says in these verses here that the law can no longer condemn us. Look at that. You have been set free in verse 2. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. Do you know that the law, the Old Testament law, and it's more than just the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are a, a key part of that law, the Decalogue. The law was there not so that you could keep the law to get to heaven. The law was there to show that you cannot keep the law. Does that make sense? God says, here's the standard. My standard is holiness. My standard is perfection. And if you want to know how to get to heaven, here's how you get to heaven. You have to be perfect. You have to be holy. And as the people of God were given the law, it was to be a reminder to them that they could not keep the law. You can't, you can't do it. If somebody says, well, I'm going to heaven because I'm keeping the Ten Commandments, 
Nobody's ever been able to do that except Jesus Christ. He kept the Ten Commandments. I love that. Jesus kept the law, so we just keep Christ. The law could not set us free. It was limited, the Bible says. But I love this. He sent his only son, Jesus, in the flesh. That just means as God incarnate in the flesh to live a sinless life and give his life for us. There is no longer judgment for sin, no condemnation. We now have the righteousness of God that's been provided by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's taken care of. Isn't that good news? That Jesus Christ took care of the penalty that I should deserve for my sin. He paid the price on the cross. I love the account. A couple of years ago, CBS News carried a story of a skydiver, a lady who turned 54 years old from Teague, Texas. Her name was Shirley Diger. She decided she was going to learn to skydive. So her first uh, attempt was to go, and they, they strapped her to the skydiving instructor to do a tandem jump. That's the only way I would go. Strapped to somebody else who knew what they're doing. You know what? I probably wouldn't even do it if I had somebody. <laughs> but she jumped out of the airplane, and, and as they jumped out, the instructor gave her the, the guidance. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull this ripcord. And they pulled the cord, and something messed up, and the chute didn't deploy the way it was supposed to. But he said, no problem. We have this reserve chute. And they pulled the reserve chute, and it got tangled in the other chute. So there was a limited parachute, and they were coming down about 40 miles an hour, falling with no safety net. And that instructor, Dave Hartsock, gave her some instructions. He said, I want you to lift up your knees. And she was underneath him. She lifted up her knees, and they rotated around to where the, the limited chute was above them, and his back was to the ground. And at about 40 miles an hour, they impacted the ground. And he took the brunt of that fall. He was paralyzed, but he lived to tell about it. But she walked away from that with minor injuries. I thought, there's a picture of what Christ did for us. We were falling. And he said, let me get in the path so that when you hit the ground, I'll take the blow, I'll take the brunt. No condemnation, free from judgment. I love that. But let's look at the second freedom. We've not only been set free from, that from judgment and condemnation, we've been set free, free from defeat. From defeat. Look at verse 5 with me. Freedom from defeat. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death. And that means spiritual death ultimately. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law for it is unable to do so. Let me just stop right there. In and of ourselves in the flesh where we're the boss, where we're number one, where we're in charge of our life, we are contrary to God and His will because we want what's only right and best for us. Hostile against God. Where did I stop? Verse 8. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who do not know Christ as Savior, those who do not have his spirit, cannot please him. How You, however, writing to believers, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's that righteousness of God given to us, applied to our lives. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. What a great word. So then, he says in verse 12, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. 
For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. See, we've been set free from, from defeat. And there's no obligation, as he says in verse 12 there. We are not obligated anymore to the flesh because we have the Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit of God who enables us to overcome the flesh and live for God. Isn't that good news? I am no longer struggling to have to try to live this life that would be pleasing to God because the Spirit of God has come to live within me. Did you know that when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Spirit of God comes to live within you? And Paul gives this explanation. The Spirit of God now gives you the ability to say yes to God and no to sin. We're not under that slavery, that that bondage where the the flesh was in control. Did you know that before you trusted Christ, if you're a, a Christ follower, if you're a believer, before you trusted Christ, you could not say no to sin? You might have thought you were. Maybe you tried and it was temporary, but ultimately sin is going to have dominion. It's going to be in charge of your life. But when you trust Christ as Savior, he now gives you the ability, the power, the righteousness of God, the power to say no to sin and yes to him. See, he he says before Christ, you were slaves to the flesh. You were slaves to your own desires. Now in Christ, you've been set free from that. You're no longer obligated in and of yourselves to try to live the Christian life. He notes three levels in this this, uh, section of what it means to to, to live. First of all, he talks about those who do not have the Spirit. Look at verse 9. By the way, there's about 39 sermons in here. All right, we're just going to look at four points. That's it. You're going to, because you're going to say, Pastor, why didn't you talk about that? There just wasn't time. But look at verse 9. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There's a picture of the person who does not know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Not only does he not have life, eternal life, but he doesn't have the Spirit of God. That's the first picture there. That's an unbeliever. Not belonging to God because he doesn't have the Spirit. But then if you look also in verse 9, he's at the very first part of verse 9, He says, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. So the first level is an unbeliever without the spirit of God. The second level of life he talks about is a person who trusts Christ as Savior, and the spirit of God lives within him. That's a believer. God, the spirit of God, lives in you. Paul has much to say about the spirit of God living within us. He says, your body is the temple of God or the sanctuary of the spirit of God. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That there's, that's an important truth, that, that God's Spirit lives within us. The, these walls, this building is not the temple of God. This is not the sanctuary. Our bodies are the sanctuary. If you trust Christ as Savior, he lives within you. So that's the person who has the Spirit. But then in verse 12, he begins to discuss a person not just who has the Spirit, but a person where the Spirit has you. Did you know there's a difference? Did you know to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior is to have the Spirit of God within you? But there is another level of living the Christian life, and that's called the level of being filled with the Spirit. That's the level of obedience. That's where I'm no longer in charge of every decision of my life. He has me. Look at verse 14. He just uses these words. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. That's that third level. Now, this is not a a second level of Christianity and not like a second blessing that you have to attain. It is just what we're called to do. But the sad thing is many Christians don't live on that level. Many Christians say, I've trusted Christ and I know I'm going to heaven, but the daily decisions of my life, those are mine. 
I'll include God in my decisions on Sunday morning when I go to church. I'll give him a nod on Sunday morning. That's not living the Spirit-filled life. If you look at Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible says be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean he's going to pour his Spirit out in you. He says be filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with uh, alcohol. Basically, the, the picture here is when a person has the, has, is under the influence of alcohol, they're influenced by the alcohol. What Paul says is instead you need to be influenced by the Spirit. So it, to be Spirit-filled is not to have more of God's Spirit. You can't get any more of him. He's a person. He lives within you. But it's for, you, for him to have more of you. It's to be yielded, to be controlled by the Spirit. I am no longer obligated in and of myself to try to live the Christian life because the Spirit of God lives within me and I can now say no to sin. I can overcome the flesh. Peter Bukley said this. He said, if God be God over us, we must yield him universal obedience in all things. He must not be over us in one thing and under us in another, but he must be over us in everything. That's to be filled with the Spirit. That is for the Lord Jesus Christ to be enthroned on the, on the throne of your heart. Folks who wrote the four, four spiritual laws, I think it was Campus Crusade, is that right? Somebody help me. Had the little drawing, the little diagram, and it had a little throne on your heart, and, and the picture was Christ seated on the throne and not off the throne. He wants to be enthroned. The Bible says that he, he made Jesus Christ to be both Lord or Savior, but both, both Savior and Lord, and Lord means to be the boss of your life. He occupies you. America has learned the hard lesson over the years. You go back to World War II. That once we moved in and took over and we're victorious in Japan or Germany, there's this hard lesson that we still haven't learned to this day that, that once you conquer, you have to occupy to keep things the way they need to be. America struggled over the years, but that's a truth in warfare that, that once you take over, you have to occupy to keep things the way you think they need to be. See, when the Spirit of God comes to live within us, He comes in to occupy. He doesn't just come to set up a beachhead and say, okay, I've conquered this person's life, and now I can say Christian and check it off. He says, I've conquered this person's life. I've, Christ has given His life for this person, paid the price for their sin, and now the Spirit of God wants to come in and occupy, to be in charge. I'm not under this obligation anymore. To try to please God on my own. The Spirit of God occupies my heart. He's in charge. Number three, we will be set free from anticipation. We've been set free from this condemnation, from judgment, and from defeat, but we will be set free from anticipation, this, this longing, this desiring. Look with me at verse 18. There's a whole other sermon here. Man, focus, focus. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Can I read that verse again? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. What's well, going to be good, folks? Doesn't matter how bad it gets. It's nothing compared to the glory that we're going to receive when we're with him. Listen to this description of the longing. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. That just means for the, the coming of the age when Christ comes back and, and we'll be with him. For the creation was, it, was subjected 
to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, in the Genesis chapter 3, when mankind sinned, it's what's called the fall. The Bible says consequences of the fall are that we live in this fallen world. And death entered in and, and struggles entered in. And, and the Bible is saying that God is saying that creation didn't make that decision. Man made that decision and put creation in this bondage. Verse 21. That, is that where I am? That the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption and the glorious freedom of God's children. Not only when Jesus comes back will we be set free ultimately to live with him in eternity, but creation itself will be liberated. The Bible speaks of a, a new heaven and a new earth. Longing for that. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. That's, that's the groaning, isn't it? That's longing for that delivery. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope because the one who hopes for, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. That's eternity, folks. That's not just here and now. That is in the presence of God for eternity. That's heaven. And then he gives this description of the Spirit's groaning in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also joins and helps in our weakness because we do not know how to pray for as we, what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. That's the, the theme of this section, groaning. And he who searches the hearts and knows the Spirit's mind because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Just, just a parenthetically, basically, when you don't know how to pray, God's Holy Spirit comes in and knows how to pray for you. And if you're praying out of God's will, you can say, Lord, I, I may not know your will in this one, but I'm going to trust your spirit's going to intercede for me. That's what he's talking about. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. That last part of that verse is so important. It's not just enough to say, I love God and he's working in my life. It's to say, I love God, he's working in my life. He has called me according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's predestined us for. That's what he has in store for you is to make your life more like Christ. He wants to shape you to conform you to the image of his son. He wants to chisel off all the junk in your life that doesn't look like Jesus. He wants to chip away anything that keeps you from being Christ-like, conformed to the image of his Son, so that you would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. So we're set free from this anticipation. of We will be set free from this anticipation of waiting when we can be with him. Because of that, there is no frustration. And there's no frustration because we share the glory of God, the blessed hope of Christ's return. Paul says, we hope for what we do not see. We eagerly await for this with patience. That's incredible, folks. Creation groaning, longing. One, one scholar said it, it's picture of creation with, with its neck stretched out, waiting. When I was a kid, growing up in El Paso, Texas, we had a, a big festival every year called the Sun Carnival. That's when we had the Sun Bowl and all that stuff. Maybe you've seen the Sun Bowl. Uh, but we had the Sun Carnival Parade, and, and we would go every year. It was the big deal. I think it was on New Year's Day. And we'd go downtown and, and line the streets 
of Montana waiting for this parade to come in. I can remember as a kid leaning out, straining, looking, trying to stand on something to see the first float or to see the band or whatever was number one in the parade. Just, just can hardly wait. We've set up, it's been a couple hours waiting for the first thing on the parade to come by. That's the picture there. That's the word in the original language. Creation and, and mankind are longing for that day when this life will be done and we'll be in the presence of Jesus. And we'll be celebrating a new heaven and a new earth. Creation groans. Believers groan. The Spirit of God groans. I I love this phrase. Just look at verse 23 with me. And not only that, we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves. First fruits. You know what first fruits were? First fruits were the, the first of the crop that was given. It was the best of the crop that would be taken and shown to somebody, either somebody who's going to purchase it or maybe it would be taken as an offering to the Lord to say this is the beginning. This is a foretaste of the rest of the crops that are going to come. This is just a, this is just a taste. This is just a picture of how good the rest is going to be. You ever go down the valley, all along the road, you have fruit stands. And you drive and you're debating, should I pull over that one? Should I pull over to that one? When you finally make up your mind and you pull over, there's often a guy there and he's got a bunch of fruit there and he's got his knife with him, a little paring knife. And you, you want to taste his oranges or whatever. He takes his little knife and he cuts some of that out and he says, here you go. And I can remember as a kid doing that, going to Fredericksburg and getting peaches like that. Takes that knife and cuts that. You know, that's, that's a foretaste. That's just a sample of how good it's going to be. Basically, the guy's saying, you think this peach is good? You think this slice of grapefruit is good? Man, it's even better on the truck. And if you take a bushel basket home, you'll be blessed. That's what they're saying. Folks, that's this anticipation, this groaning. I can hardly wait to be with Jesus. I tell you what, for years, if a preacher said, Jesus is coming again, you'd hear amens all over the room. But I tell you what, that's going to be a great day, but... That's going to be a day that's not expected by many. Our choir sang that phrase, give me one more, one more opportunity to share Christ. That's the way we need to live. On September 11th, 2,600 plus people thought they were going to work business as usual at the World Trade Center. And that was the end of their physical earthly life. It can come that quick. The Bible says Jesus will come like a thief in the night. The Bible says nobody can know. I preached a sermon one time on the second coming, and a man met me at the door, and he said, Pastor, you said uh, nobody knows when Jesus is coming. I said, well, the Father does. And he said, yeah, but he said, he said uh, I know when he's coming. So I thought, okay, here we go. He said, he's coming at an hour which we know not. So um, <laughs> he got me. I thought I was about to get a sermon, a prophetic word. Folks, we need to be ready. The fact that Jesus is coming again should have us reaching our necks out with anticipation. Not just to be with him, not just to have this this heaven, not just to be set free from the corruption of this this world, this fallen world we live in, but to know that to be with him, time's going to be up. No second chances, no do-overs. Be ready. We'll be set free from that anticipation because there will no, be no frustration because we share the glory of God and his blessed hope of his return. C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Aim at heaven. Number four. Some of you thought we'd never get there. Right? I know you. 
And I know who you are, too. (laughs) It's those people that fill in the outline ahead of time. Number four, we've been set free from despair. We've been set free from despair or hopelessness. Set free from despair. Look with me at verse 31. Folks, this this should get you excited. I haven't even read it out loud yet, and I'm already getting excited. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare, even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Can I just go back to my first point? You've been set free from judgment, so no one can bring this accusation. Basically saying, who, who, could, who can judge you now? God is the one who justifies. He's made you right through Christ. Who is the one who condemns? No condemnation. Who is the one who condemns? Christ, Jesus, is the one who died, but even more, has been raised, and he also sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. No condemn, no judgment, no condemnation. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he could have listed a hundred other things. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, the death, the persecution, the anguish, the affliction, the famine, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that not even death, nor life, nor angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. See, we've been set free from despair and hopelessness, and there is no separation. Did you see that? Who can separate us, verse 35? No one. He, conv- he says, I'm convinced that none of these things, in verse 39, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's no separation because we've experienced the love of God. In verse 31, he says that God is for us. In verse 32, he says Christ died for us. In verse 33, he says God has justified us. He's the one who justified. In verse 34, he says he's the one who intercedes for us, who has made it right between us and the Father. In verse 35 through 39, he says Christ loves us. And it's because of the love of Christ, nothing can separate us from that love. Folks, there's freedom, freedom from judgment, freedom from defeat, freedom from this longing, this anticipation that one day we'll be with him, and freedom from hopelessness in this life we live because of what Christ has done for us. That's some some freedom to celebrate, isn't it? Glory be to God that in Christ Jesus, he has made possible for us to be set free from the bondage of sin and death and be seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and to be given the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives, that when the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of the Son. Folks, that's good. Anne Graham Lotz tells, giving an illustration, a scenario about her father, Dr. Billy Graham. 
She tells about it, her dad's home in North Carolina there. And she says people come to visit that home all the time. And some come and they drive up this long driveway. And, and they could get to the gate and they could rattle the gate or knock on the gate. And she said, my dad, Billy Graham, will say, they'll say to him, let us in. And, and they'll tell him, we've read your books. We've watched you on TV. We've written you letters. And, and her dad will say, depart from me. Because I really don't know you personally. They say, we want to come into your house. And they say, I don't know you. You're not a member of my family. You haven't made an appointment or any arrangements to come see me. But then Ann says this. But when I go home, I drive up that long driveway. I grab hold of that gate and I rattle that gate. I knock on that gate. And I say, Daddy, this is Ann. And I've come home. She says, then Daddy opens the gate because I belong to him. Folks, it's not enough to rejoice in all these freedoms. If you've never trusted in Christ Jesus as your personal Savior, the Bible's clear. You can stand at the gates of heaven and rattle and scream and holler, let me in. But you may get the words, if you don't know him as Savior, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know him? Do you know these freedoms? Has the Spirit of God come to live within you? Does Jesus Christ reside as Lord and Savior in your life? If not... We're going to give you an opportunity to let him come into your life, to trust him as Lord and Savior right now. Would you bow your heads with me?